0: Good morning. I hope you're having a good weekend. I don't know about you, but I didn't know it was going to rain today, and I had plans this afternoon to play pickleball. How many of you have played pickleball? Just raise your hand. Be proud. What a surprisingly awesome sport, okay? If you have never played pickleball, Matt Bateman, one of our elders, introduced me to it. It is awesomely fun. You don't have to be some great athlete. In fact, the typical age range is like 60 and above there, and so anyone can play any age group. those older men and women will get you, trust me. Um, but pickleball is really fun, and hopefully we can play this afternoon. So, welcome to our rainy Sunday. Let's do this. Let's open the scriptures. As Benton said, we're going to be in the book of Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, look on with a friend or pull out your phone and go to Revelation chapter 3. In our series, we're going to come to our fifth letter. Uh, to Fifth letter, uh, in Christ's letters to the churches. And... What I want to do is just start by reading the letter in its entirety. It's not too long. It's six verses, and it's written to the church in Sardis. Just a reminder, this is modern-day Turkey, and uh, let's pick up. Verse 1. Remember, this is Jesus Christ himself writing this letter to them. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Stardust, people who have not sold their garments And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Jesus goes on in verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never, never blot out his or her name out of the book of life. I will confess his or her name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's do like we did last week. When you're doing good Bible study, you always want to kind of look for the breakdown. What's the outline that's happening in this passage? If we could bring that to the screen. There's five main movements to what Jesus is saying to this church. Reminder, this is a local congregation that he's writing to. Just if Jesus were to write in present day to us at Grace Athens. This is what you find. He starts with a vision of himself. What does he say in verse 1? He's the one that holds the stars and the seven spirits of God. So he says, remember me, get your eyes on me. Secondly, in verses 1 and 2, he goes with criticism. He brings a critique of saying, hey, this is where you're struggling in the church. I want to help you go a different direction. And he uses pretty um, understandable language like, you're dead, you need to wake up. Verse 3, he gives the challenge. He then moves on to a warning in verse 3. And then he gives some pretty awesome promises that I just read in verses 4 and 6. Like we said last week, I believe that Christ, the living Christ, the resurrected Christ, still speaks to his church in prayer and through his word and through prophetic ministry. I I think he still speaks to us. How, How many of you have had times in life where you were in crisis and you really sought to hear the voice of God? God, I need to hear you for what's happening in my family, for this decision. Do I buy this house? Do I leave this job? What do I do? When you really seek the voice of Christ, he begins to speak to you in all kinds of ways. What you find here in all seven letters where Christ is speaking to a church that was in modern-day Turkey as he would speak to us is this pattern. What that means is this is not the only way that Christ speak to us, speaks to us, but it is a primary way. And so what we said last week is this. If all you hear is criticism, you're not hearing the whole story. That's not how Christ speaks. If all you hear is promise about your future and what's going to happen, then you're not hearing all that Christ has to say. When Christ speaks, he speaks in a holistic way to every area and piece and dimension of our life, whether it's a, as a follower of Jesus or as a church. Now, let me go ahead and give you the cliff notes. I don't know about you, but when I was in literature class in high school, I, I loved the cliff notes. So, so here you go. Then we're going to break it down. The cliff notes are this. The issue in this church congregation was... Complacency. Complacency. They had become complacent. Dead, asleep, wake up, strengthen yourself. Just like I want to shake you. You've become spiritually complacent in their Christian lives. They were just going through the Christian motions, as we've probably often heard about. Still attending services and small groups. But there was no hunger. There was no witness. And the passion was beginning to drain out. That's where they are. And so when I read that, I first go, well, Lord, am I complacent? Is our church complacent? Could you have written this letter to us right now in modern-day United States of America? And I ask this question, how did they get this way? How did this church get to a place where Jesus is saying, you need to wake up? Because this is what I know to be true about life. Your heart does not grow cold and complacent overnight doesn't just happen. A marriage does not go cro- grow cold and complacent overnight. There's a series of long events. Things that were supposed to happen, uh, things that weren't supposed to happen, that did happen, on and on down the list, where a marriage grows cold. It, 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 it's a long, slow story of draining passion in a marriage. Like a small leak in a boat. Where that passion begins to drain out. There is always, always a backstory to divorce. We know this to be true. Some of us have been affected by that. It didn't just happen, it's a long story that led to that to occur. And so I want to ask this what was this church's backstory that led for their hearts to be in this kind of situation? So let's pick up in verse one. You kind of have the overall theme. And let's take it a little bit deeper. Verse 1, Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write. Let's pause there. Let's ask this. Who, who is this church in Sardis? If they're the ones that have become complacent and we want to know what's going on, we want to know the backstory. Uh, we've got to start there. So let me tell you about Sardis. If we could bring that slide to the screen. This is Sardis. Obviously, it's not a photo. This, uh, this would have been in first century Uh, modern day Turkey, but what you see here is that this city was built in the mountains. It was built safely and secure in the mountains and it had this big reputation. As Jesus says, you have this reputation for being alive. It had this big reputation for being unconquerable. That no army could invade and take over this city because it was safely secure in its geographic area. But, Something happened in Sardis 600 years before the gospel reached them that their people and their history had never forgotten. Although it was safe and secure in the mountains and they thought no one can ever capture us. They kind of had this arrogance about them in modern day language. They had a bit of swag about them as a city because they were so safe and secure and, and, and impenetrable. What happens to this city 600 years before Jesus wrote to them is they had become complacent and asleep. They thought, no one can get us, we're fine. We're the great Sardis up here in the mountains. Our city is impenetrable. And they become complacent. Until one night, a Persian army found a way in. King Cyrus, who we hear about in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. It was King Cyrus... Who in 546 BC invaded this city and took it over. And this was a very hard lesson for the Sardinian people to learn. And it was, the reality is, it's never easy to grow out of that kind of complacency and pride. It was a very prideful city. I'm trying to think of an equivalent to a prideful city. Maybe New York, hey, Washington, D.C. I want to name other ones. I haven't traveled that much, so I'll just leave it there. A prideful city. The reality is that now Jesus is saying to this Christian community 600 years prior that they need to learn this all over again. That they have gone back to their old ways where the city and the culture has influenced them over the reverse and they have become asleep, complacent in their pride self-dependence and reputation. And so what does he say in verse 2? You need to wake up. In the words of Jesus, they need to realize that they are dead. Unfortunately, here's a bit of history, they never got the message. This city and this church never grew out of that complacency, never grew out of that pride. They did not wake up and now it actually is dead. Today, if you were to visit these mountains, you would not find a city of Sardis and you would not find a modern day church. They never did heed Jesus' invitation. So I look at that history and I say this what's the moral of that very real historical story for us? And it's this in two words complacency kills. Complacency kills. It kills a marriage, it kills a city over time, it kills a Christian, and in this letter, it can kill an entire church. Complacency is this nasty spiritual disease. And it's a disease that creeps in when we're unaware, when we don't know that it's happening. So good Bible study is to pause right here and say this, do you find yourself at all in your life, any area of your life, any area of your heart? Do you find yourself a bit complacent this morning? Is there complacency in your walk with God? Is there complacency in your relationships? Is there complacency in your marriage? Is there complacency in your career? Your heart has just grown cold and you've just kind of said, okay, I'm going to settle. I'm going to settle. Our hearts can get this way for various reasons. It can happen because of success, where we get proud and lazy. It can happen because of failure, and you get discouraged and disinterested. Let me give you some examples. This can happen in your first job after college. How many of us, or how many of you, when you graduated, had these big dreams and hopes for what that first career would be? It's going to be awesome. I'm going to Have this awesome job and fulfill this degree I've been working on. If you went to grad school, it just doubles your expectation and your debt for, you know, that first job and that career. I'm just going to take off. And over 12 months, you realize it's not what you had dreamed it would be. And then this happens. You settle into complacency. And you just have a job. You just pay bills. This can happen after the first couple years of marriage. Any married couple here will tell you you have to fight against this. You have to fight. You have to continue to pursue each other and keep the flames of romance and interest and selflessness going, or you will settle. Your heart will settle into complacency. And what I know to be true is not only can it happen in a job, not only can it happen in a marriage, it can always happen in our Christian lives. It can always happen. According to Jesus in this passage, what are you supposed to do if that happens? Jesus is very direct. He just says, hey, A to B, here's how it works. He says it right here in verse 2. Here's what you're to do if this happens. Verse 2 reads this, if we could bring it to the screen. Jesus says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of of my God his answer right there in verse 2 is wake up because you're asleep just doing simple logic strengthen yourself because you've become weak that's what he's saying so wake up and strengthen yourself now I read that and I say well thank you Jesus, thank you that's not complicated thank you that it's A to B but that's not easy I can't just rouse myself out of my spiritual slumber or the slumber of my marriage or whatever it is. How am I supposed to just do this on my own? Christ knows this, and it's why he offers supernatural support. It's all right there in the passage. Look at verse 1. Go back to verse 1. His opening words in verse 1 give a vision of him doing what? Holding. Seven stars and holding the seven spirits representing the power of the Holy Spirit. The seven stars are the angels, angelic support. So he begins the letter. He says, hey, look at me. I am the risen Christ, the cosmic Christ who symbolically holds angelic support in one hand for you and the power of the Spirit in the other hand for you. So everything I'm about to criticize, I'm going to provide the support you need to conquer later in the passage and overcome. He knows it's not easy for us to just wake up, right? What this means is that Christ has supernatural strength available to help you wake up out of your slumber. What they need and what we need in this room at times in different seasons of life is the Spirit's life-giving power which raised Jesus from the dead to wake us up from our spiritual slumber. All you got to do is ask. It's called grace. All you got to do is in the name of Jesus. You go home today. This is you. If I'm speaking to your heart, and if I'm not, it's going to come later. It's going to come later. This is just seasons of life. We're sinful creatures. These things are going to creep in. This is what you need to do. You need to go home and you need to have a moment of prayer with Jesus. Get back out this Bible and this passage and say, Lord, I want to believe that these words are true. They're not fairy tale. And that you're present to me holding angelic support and the Holy Spirit. And you're ready to transfer them to send them, to move them into this room, into my life, so that I can wake up. Lord, would you do that for me right now and over the next seven days this week? And here's what I know. When we really seek the Lord and we ask something that he's telling us to ask him, he always provides. He always provides. Let's move on. Now he moves into the challenge and the warning in in the passage. This is verse 3. Take a look at verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So right there at the beginning of the verse, the challenge is first remember. Remember what? I'm just looking at the verse. Remember what you received and heard. So remember the faith, the gospel that you received and the, the voice of God you've heard in your life. And then he goes on, start with remembering and then keep it and repent. Jesus talks a lot about remembering in these letters. I heard this the other day in a podcast. It's a podcast, I don't know if it's true, but I heard this. Confirm if it's true. That reliving a memory in your mind is psychologically equivalent to actually living the event according to what your body goes through. Have you heard of this? Any psychology majors or psychologists out there? I'll say it again. The act of remembering the event is just as equivalent as actually living the event. Remembering is a powerful spiritual tool in the Christian life. And so often in these letters before Jesus says repent, repent, which is to change your mind, change the direction. He says, hey, I want to go back with you. I want to right now in this moment of prayer, I want to take your mind back to when you had that passion and you had that fire in your marriage and your walk with me. Let's go back. Let's relive that. I want you to feel the flame again. Then I want you to call on me, and I want to begin to fan it back and bring it back to life. He also gives a warning. Jesus holds us accountable. He'd be a negligent, evil parent if he didn't. If I let Jack or Shay or one day Judd do whatever they wanted in my house, it would be a wreck. They'd be bleeding. It would just be a mess. And so often I say, Jack or Shay, if you do that again, I'm going to put you in timeout. If you do that again, I'm going to take away that toy. It's accountability. It's a warning. It's for their good. It's because I love them. If I let that happen, well, it'd be a mess. So he gives this warning. He says, if this continues, the church in Sardis will suffer the same fate as the city had suffered six centuries earlier, like we talked about. They'll be invaded, not by the Persians, but by Christ. He says, I will come to you like a thief in the night. You won't know when, the verse says, and I will come against you. And so you have to pause here and say, well, is he talking about the second coming? Because Revelation talks a lot about that. But what you'll find is throughout Revelation, there are other times that Christ comes now to a church and to a person in a spiritual way, and life circumstances, and it's not the future second coming. And what you'll find if you do a little research, a little digging, is that Christ coming to us now really takes Two kinds of forms. The first is in times of persecution where Christ comes to cleanse and purify his church. And the second is when he comes to us or to a community to comfort and restore his church. He comes to us. Not just later, but now. And you'll find the same teaching in Paul, Peter, and Jesus. Not just John. I'm just giving you what the scriptures say. It was obviously a regular warning and comfort for the early Christians. Let's take a look. If we could bring those to the screen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 reads this. This is, we'll start with Paul. Paul, by the Spirit, said, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then Peter, probably his best friend, says this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then Jesus himself, but know this, I mean, when he says that, I'm listening. Know this, Grace Athens, that if the master of the house had not or had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. It would not have let his house be broken into. He's speaking through a parable there. So what Jesus is talking about, the warning, is this is a now invasion that Christ will come to purify and comfort his people. It's real and it's serious, and I think it still happens today. I'm very curious to what Christ was doing during COVID. I don't think Christ was just, eh, I'll figure it out. I think Christ works, Romans 13, through governments, through scientists, through pastors, through moms, through dads. I don't think that Christ took the last year and a half off. I think he was incredibly active coming to his church and to his world and doing things. Colossians 1 says he holds the entire universe together. Hebrews 1 says he holds all atoms, molecules, subatomic realities together by the power of his word. He's active, he comes to us to comfort or to purify. I don't know how many of you are history buffs, but I was reading one of the commentaries for this book, and it brought this story. It was December 7th, 1941. Commander Mitsu Fukaita flew his bomber over the North Pacific. His mission was to lead the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. I believe we have a photo of Commander Mitsu. This is him. He led the attack on Pearl Harbor. And as he's flying, ready to drop bombs on the harbor, the commander realized the situation was better than they had even hoped for because the defenses of the Americans were low they were in a very low state of readiness the guns protecting the harbor were unmanned and the planes were still sitting on the runways as just open targets now if you know your history you know this that the us uh, military had actually decoded some communications months before this attack that the japanese had sent out they had They'd found those or found a way of some spycraft way to, to acquire those months earlier and still they did no preparation. They were asleep. They were complacent. As Commander Mitsu was flying over, he broke radio silence and in Japanese said Tora Tora Tora, which means tiger, 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 which was the code name to begin the attack, to begin the bombing. The first five minutes were the worst of Pearl Harbor. They destroyed almost everything in that first five minutes. The harbor, the U.S. fleet, were basically completely destroyed. If we could bring up some photos, and we could just slowly scroll through these. Let me give you some statistics. Of the eight U.S. battleships in the harbor, three were sunk, with one capsized and four seriously damaged. Three light cruisers and three destroyers were sunk. 261 planes were destroyed, with many others damaged. And of the service personnel, 3,226 were dead, and 1,272 were wounded. It was a terrible day. As the reports came in, they exceeded Commander Mitsu's wildest dreams. But when hearing the reports, there was an admirable, it was considered, he was considered Japanese greatest military mind, he he's reported for saying this i fear we have awakened a sleeping giant talking about the us his words turned out to be prophetic as we know how history happened pearl harbor was the wake up call to wake up from their complacency to strengthen themselves And the war went on, and it finally came to an end in the total surrender of the Japanese aboard a U.S. battleship in Tokyo Bay. And guess who was there? Commander Mitsu. He was aboard the USS Missouri the day the emperor surrendered. And he was one of the few that witnessed witnessed the very beginning of the war in his plane as he dropped bombs on Pearl Harbor and the very end of the war with that surrender. Here's what's amazing about his story, story. just a side note. This commander was later converted to Christ. And he became an awesome evangelist working both in Japan and around the world. Just a side note. You see, the attitude of those who lived in the unconquerable Sardis, like we talked about, was like that of the officers who were in charge of Pearl Harbor. They were asleep and they were complacent. And so just as we looked at that story of Sardis and we asked the same question, what is the moral of this real historical story? It's this, complacency kills. Complacency kills. Complacency can become a deadly spiritual disease which can result in tragedy and death like Pearl Harbor if left unchecked. It's like a cancer that you refuse to go to, to, go to the doctor and get Checked, It can spread. So Jesus gives them a merciful warning. Hey, I'm inviting you to do this. As it says in verse 3, remember. Remember what you've received, what you heard. Let me take you back. Repent. And if you don't, this is what needs to happen. He ends with a promise. He ends on a positive note. The promise is the motivator. It's to motivate the people in Sardis. It's to motivate us in today's church. Verse 4. Jesus says, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his Angels. So he says, just to show you the passage, to those who wake up, verse 2, who stay unpolluted, verse 4, and who conquer, verse 5, they receive a promise that's very well known in the Gospels. He will confess their names before the Father and his angels. This isn't just a dream, a hope. Jesus said this, and when I read something Jesus said, if if he really is the Son of God, then I don't think he exaggerates or lies, because he'd be all all-knowing and completely good. And so let me just show it to you. Mark chapter 8, it'll be on the screen. Jesus said, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. That's the warning. But then Luke chapter 12 says it this way. Jesus says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge them before the angels of God. Along with this great promise is that their names will stay written in the book of life. We could bring that to the screen. Revelation 20. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Again in verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 21, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Bring this to a close. I look at that, and I thought to myself this week, is there anything greater than knowing there is a future day, a real day, I mean, to really go there in your mind, when I will be standing before God Almighty, and Jesus will be there, and he will say to his father, I present your son, John Raymond. He is with us. Is there anything greater than that? This is a real promise. This isn't fairy tale. It's not myth. It's not fable. It is a promise that those who follow him now, that on that day when we appear before our Maker, the Creator and Lover and Sustainer of the universe, that your name will be uttered from the mouth of Jesus, saying, This is our daughter. This is our son. What a promise. And is there anything more comforting than knowing that your name is permanently written down in the book of life? I want to say this, friends. If you find yourself spiritually complacent this morning, and remember this. Christ promises you both angelic support and the power of the Holy Spirit to wake you back up. All you have to do is ask him for it. Just ask him for it. If your marriage is draining in passion, go to Christ. If your life at work is intolerable and you're losing the passion you need to be kind and to be a witness and to do good work and to serve the world, go to Christ. If you're in your grad program and the exams keep stacking up and your passion wasn't what it was when you first enrolled and you're afraid, do I really want to do this? Go to Christ. He stands there with the angels in one hand and the same spirit that created every atom and thing you see in the universe who wants to create in you a new passion. God is the most generous being and reality in the universe. That's why it's a gospel of grace. And so Jesus ends. Verse 6, he who has an ear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches.